So, hello. Um, this session tonight on the 27th of October is part of Ethical Consumer Week. It's titled Creating the Community High Street. And after a decade of austerity and the shift to online shopping, the closure of shops during the coronavirus pandemic, tonight we're going to be exploring the question, should we fight to maintain the high street as we've come to know it? Or do we need to replace it with something else that, was, that is community owned and has a community function? Um, we're really pleased to welcome Vidya Alexen from Power to Change, an independent trust that supports the growth of community businesses across England. We've got Nicola Round from Ad Free Cities, which is a growing network of groups collaborating um, to res resist advertising, corporate advertising. Uh, we've got Sarah Gonzalez from the University of Leeds. Hi, Sarah, who's been researching traditional retail markets and the community value that they generate. And then we've got Neil McKinroy from CLES, um, the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, who are really involved in the community wealth building movement. So to get us started, I'm going to hand over to Vidya, if you'd like to get kick off. Great, thank you, Ruth. Good evening, everybody. I've just got a few slides to accompany what I'm going to say. Okay. Right, great. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Um, I want to just sort of start by thinking about the first period of lockdown. Um, probably not something we want to cast our minds back to, but if you think about it, I mean, we all clapped for the NHS and social care, but thankfully very few of us actually had to use it. When we think about how we got through, we got through with the support of our friends and family and neighbours, the support of our community. And probably without us really realising it at the time, community was our first line of defence. And I would argue, and what I'm hoping to persuade you of in the next 10 minutes, is that we need community to be very much at the heart of our town centres and high streets going forward. We need a community takeover. And we've been very fortunate at Power to Change as the independent trust that supports community business to support a vast number of community businesses um, that are now operating on high streets and in town centres. So overall, we've supported about 1,300 community businesses over the last uh, nearly six years, and quite a number of them are uh, based in town centres on high streets, taking over empty shops. So we are seeing the beginnings of this takeover happening. And just to give you a couple of examples um, of where this is already happening, um, in where this is already in action. So this is a, a picture of Union Street in Plymouth, and Nudge Community Builders is a community business that is slowly taking over a number of properties um, on Union Street. In fact, in September, they were just able to purchase a former cinema and add to their portfolio. So gradually they're bringing this quite um, down at heel High Street back into use, creating new activity, new community uses, uh, really reanimating the whole space. Moving to the other side of the country, this is um, Home Baked, um, a community-led bakery which is partnered with, allied to a community land trust um, in the Anfield area of Liverpool. So for those of you who know it, it is right in the shadows of Liverpool Football Club. Over the last six or seven years, the bakery has been reopened. It was traditionally a bakery, but it had closed down. It's now reopened, bringing new life back to the whole street. And gradually, as the business has developed, they've been able to do a deal with the council to take over through the community land trust the remaining street that the bakery is just the corner of and are now now have plans and have got planning permission to bring that street back into use 
as a mixture of housing, workspace and commercial space. So turning around what was a boarded up street and has been since the 1980s into uh, an increasingly vibrant stretch that is bringing life back to an area of Liverpool. Going back to the south coast again, this is Rock House in Hastings. So this is a project, um, and in fact, we've supported a number of these in various different ways, but um, Rock House was a disused, quite large building in the White Rock area of Hastings. Uh, the community got together and had brought it back into use. And before COVID, it was fully let and um, thriving. And I think, and it's still, it's still doing well, but obviously all of these businesses, as many in general are facing uh, more difficult times at the moment. But Rock House is now a really interesting mix from being an empty building. Uh, it's now a really interesting mix of community space on the ground floor, workspace in the middle and affordable housing at the top with a very interesting business model for how those all support each other to be financial and financially sustainable in the long term. And then finally, Made in Ashford in, Ashford in Kent uh, started off as a pop-up shop um, to the council were trying to put a, bring a bit of life back to a really rundown shopping centre and the, the business has grown from being that pop-up shop into a real real draw for Ashford. It houses about 50 different creative businesses within it so it's sort of a hub for the creative sector within Ashford. Uh, lots and lots of micro businesses who couldn't afford to take space themselves are housed um, within it. So what does community ownership, community activity on the high street deliver? And I think uh, these outcomes that we're seeing increasingly from research that we've just uh, published that was done by the LSE and from the vast range of experience that we're now gathering around what do you get when communities take over the high street really gives us an indication of, of the direction of travel that we need to take and what we could get if we're able to really boost the amount of community ownership and community activity on the high street. So the first, probably the most superficial in a way, is improvements to the physical fabric of place. So many of those examples I've showed you have turned round things that were in decline, that were unused, and brought a lot of vibrancy back to those areas, brought physical improvements to the, to the place. And when you talk in focus groups and we talk to people, the decline of the physical look of a place is really important to people. They, they see it as part of uh, a place being in decline, a loss of hope. So improvement to physical fabric is just the starting point, but it's, it is really important. Going round, I mean, Neil, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about community wealth building, but uh, community ownership makes money to stick within the local area. Uh, people, they, community businesses, community owned assets, employ local people, they use local suppliers, they are local multipliers. So we, from the research that we've done, 56 pence of every pound spent by a community owned asset stays in the local area. And if we want, if, if we think the way out of this crisis economically overall is to have locally rooted economic development, then communities have got to be part of the solution and communities owning more in town centres and more on high streets is, is an important part of that. Um, moving around to diversity and inclusion. So one of the really strong findings around community businesses on the high streets is their improvement that they make to diversity on the high street. They create a different offer, they draw different people in and that can create a much more inclusive place. So they, they, have di they create reasons for other groups to come into the town centre, be they older people, younger people, they create that sort of community inclusion. And then finally, um, the other really important dimension socially to what community, communities do with, when they are more involved in high streets is build that social connection and cohesion, linking people in communities, you know, high streets and town centres being not just the commercial soul, but commercial centre of a place uh, but the, the soul of a place and a place of social connection where people come together to meet face to face 
um, and communities being at the heart of that um, is really, really critical. So what do we need to do to get more community um, business, more community ownership, more community action in high streets and town centres? I think there are um, a few steps that we need to take. The first is to really embed a, a civic vision for the high street and town centre in, in how we think about it. We need to move away from the sense that this, these are commercial spaces, they're retail dominated spaces, that model is broken and it can't be, we're not going to build that back. You know, the, the, the transition to online was already underway in quite a significant way. COVID sped that up. We're not turning that around. We need to recognize, almost going back historically, that town centers are, as I said, the soul of a place. They need, we need to think of them as community spaces, as civic spaces where, uh, where community, civic, public service, uh, and retail and hospitality, all of those dimensions and workspace can, can sit together. So we really need to change the way we think about um, high streets and town centres and move to a new conception of a, of a civic a civic space. Secondly, it's really important that we recognise the strength of community solutions, of community ownership, community business, and therefore bring these organisations into a strategic role. So far too often, not just on high streets and town centres, Community organisations uh, are the implementers, the deliverers, but they rarely they rarely have the, an adequate seat at the table. So we've been doing some some work looking at the concept of a community improvement district. So could we create a new structure building on business improvement districts that give communities real voice and residents real voice in how town centres are governed, how decisions get made, what town centres stand for? Um, we really need to bring communities right up front into the planning and decision-making process if we're, going to, if we're going to change things. Thirdly, is the really critical uh, aspect of this is access to space, um, both in terms of long-term ownership, but also uh, some of the examples that I gave started out as meanwhile use, as pop-ups. So communities having better access to space is gonna be critical to driving forward um, this agenda around the community takeover. And this is where really strong partnerships with local authorities are essential. So all the work that we've done shows, and I'm sure Neil will touch on this too, that you know, it's a partnership between the local state and community that really drives this forward. It's not one replacing the other. And we've seen really great examples of um, local authorities enabling communities to do more of this through asset transfer, through uh, leases that enable meanwhile use, through uh, staggered uh, leases that stagger rent so that businesses have time to flourish and to grow uh, through access to cheaper financing, through local authority borrowing. So there are a whole range of ways in which local authorities can really kickstart this. They often, they rarely need to provide the, the main source of capital. There's other, other routes that people can, can go to, although we need to, to increase access to finance overall. But often local authorities can do that initial uh, unlocking of the door, be it the the feasibility funding at the beginning um, or the, the initial uh, money to get the first grant to really, really get going to refurbish the, the premises. So really, really critical. And then this brings me on to kind of what I've already really started to say that I think we really need these sort of much more activist local authorities who really recognise that, that communities are a, a central part of the future of town centres. Um, and high streets and really see it as their role to enable that. So strong local authorities playing a really activist role in enabling and supporting community ownership and community access to space is I think a critical part of the, the way forward. And I'll just 
wrap up now by saying, you know, this in, in the eye of a storm in terms of not just COVID and all of the impacts it's having, but the, specifically uh, the transformation that we're seeing on, on the high street. We are in the middle of a structural change that is mass has been massively accelerated by COVID. I think this is a real opportunity with depressed prices, with uh, retail on the back foot to really seize the agenda and to recognise that the way forward into a new future, into a more, more uh, inclusive and a stronger local future for people is to embrace the community takeover, embed community ownership and community uh, activity on the high street and, and start that transformation really in earnest now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vidya. Um, I've got some questions, but I'll save them till later. Um, we'll just move on to the next speaker, who, which is Nicola Round from Ad-Free Cities, if you'd like to take over. Thank you. Okay, hi everyone. Um, I'm Nicola and I'm going to talk to you about something which is found all across our local high streets and cities, um, which affects our health, our well-being, our environment, um, which is undermining our local economies um, and, um, and our community identities. But despite this, it's become part of our local street scene so much so that many people claim they don't even notice it. And I'm talking about um, corporate advertising, in particular billboard advertising. So let's just talk about what we mean, um, first of all. So um, here's an example from my local high street in Bristol. What does this show? This is a Tesco Christmas advert. Um, so firstly, it shows the usual tactics employed by corporate advertisers to sell us stuff. Um, in this case, is a picture of a perfect family Christmas. Um, does your family not look like this? I um, mean, is your Christmas not this happy? Um, do they not love you like this? Well, you know, you need to sort that out, but don't worry, shop at Tesco and this harmonious, perfect family Christmas can be yours. Um, it's the biggest supermarket, Tesco, dominating this space on our local high streets. Um, and we see this everywhere. The biggest messages, the loudest messages on our local high streets, the big billboard advertising we see um, are making us feel inadequate, unsexy, unsuccessful, lacking in some way in order to, uh, and telling us to consume, 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 whether it's for cars, for junk food, for fast fashion, or for supermarkets. The majority of the large-scale corporate advertising we see um, on our high streets in, in cities is for, you know, multinational corporations who bring very little benefit to our local economies. Um, it, and when smaller independent businesses um, have no access um, to, to this kind of exposure. Just to illustrate this, here are the top 10 companies using outdoor advertising in 2017. Um, I think the message is, is clear. It's those with the most money have the right to put their messages in front of us. So corporate outdoor advertising um, undermines local economies and businesses. It also undermines the local environment. Just to illustrate this, going back to our Tesco advert, you can see that the space um, is poorly cared for. We often see this um, with billboard sites. Um, and in fact, in this local area, interestingly, the local business improvement district, Bedminster Business Improvement District, which is made up of, of local traders in Bedminster, have adopted a position against billboards in the area. And they state that they feel, um, as local businesses, um, that billboards not only undermine the local economy, but they also make a place feel uncared for, not really worth stopping in, not really worth enjoying. And that, that's the sort of message that, that it's sending across when you see, you know, billboards all over um, an area. And in fact, advertisers often use this argument to get more advertising, um, more corporate advertising in front of us. You know, they say, oh, well, this, this, this place already has lots of billboard advertising. It wouldn't really make much additional impact um, on the local environment or the local community to have more. 
it's also this is also about whose voices are heard i think you know we, when we look at um the spaces that are used and the advertising there it's clear that the voices that that sort of take, take that dominate our local communities are big corporations like this who really have very little interest in the well-being and resilience of local communities and we know this because um, we spend a lot of time looking at planning applications for new outdoor advertising sites the advertising companies never make any mention of the views of the local communities um, even when there are large numbers um, of people councillors community groups residents groups objecting which we frequently find that there are when we're able to raise awareness of, of, of applications for new available sites um, it, the advertising companies completely ignore this so hopefully i've shown that um, billboards um, are, are not good for our local communities um, so taking down billboards would be good for the local economy but also better for us and for the planet and the kind of companies that advertise on, on billboards are not just undermining the local economy, um, but also driving overconsumption, climate change, and using tactics, as we've seen, which undermine our well-being, making us unhappier, and of course, therefore, better consumers of stuff. Advertising companies are now intent, as some of you may have seen, on transforming these structures into digital advertising screens. These are more profitable. If you live in places like London, Birmingham, or Manchester, you'll be used to seeing these. They're designed to attract attention from motorists um, with changing displays of, of six adverts per minute. They're even more expensive and exclusive to, to, to large businesses, selling us yet more cars, among other things. Um, and in some cases, well, in, in most cases, profiting from our already congested cities. I just want to show you this advertising pitch, um, selling this um, digital advertising space in Bristol um, by saying that Bristol is one of the most congested cities. Um, and so, you know, people are constantly spending their time um, sitting still in traffic. So put your advert here. Um, a major concern as well is where and by who um, the negative impacts of advertising are felt the most. So this is a, um, a map of billboard sites in Bristol, an industry map, and you can see um, in the sort of central east part of the city, an area um, called Lawrence Hill, which is a lower income area of the city, where the major M32 road cuts through um, into Bristol. Um, and many of the billboards that you see along here are advertising cars. Um, Lawrence Hill is, a, is an area of um, high, high air pollution, poor air quality, um, also actually low rates of car ownership. Um, so this is really about injustice as well. We should be aspiring to make all of our neighbourhoods healthy, pleasant, safe spaces to live, not just those that are already considered desirable. So um, despite all of this, we generally accept um, corporate advertising in our um, neighbourhoods, but more people and groups are questioning it and are fighting back. Um, so my invitation to you tonight is to imagine a city without billboards. Um, we're asking, you know, how could we reclaim these public spaces from corporate consumerism um, without these huge adverts, which nobody asked for? Um, would we have more space to think and space for what we really need? So we are Ad Free Cities. We're a network of groups around the UK. We began with Adblock Bristol in 2017, and we've since then seen more groups um, emerging around the UK. Um, Adblock groups in Leeds, Birmingham, Cardiff, Exeter, London, and we launched Ad Free Cities this year to support these groups and other emerging groups. We have a vision, um, happier, healthier cities, 
free from the pressures of corporate outdoor advertising. We're seeking alternatives beyond consumerism, celebrating community connection, solidarity, public art, nature. We want together to take back creative control of our neighbourhoods and make space for what we really need to thrive. So just briefly what we do then, um, it's first about holding the line and trying to prevent any new advertising sites coming into our city. So we support residents and communities to oppose planning applications for new digital billboards, which is really all the planning applications we see for new advertising, um, for new advertising sites now. We showcase positive alternatives to corporate advertising like community art. We also produce resources and organise events to raise awareness about the impacts of advertising. Um, and we lobby for change, um, engaging in dialogues with councils um, about advertising policy and also exploring opportunities for change um, at, at a national level. So we talk about creating space for what we need and what, what is that? This is the, this is the exciting question. Um, at different communities will have different needs. Um, our primary goal as a network is to remove available advertising and for the most part communities might be happiest just with you know, the space um, to um, you know to to think or maybe even to see the architecture once more here's an example from a local community in bristol st werbergs which, which predates um our three cities um this community have been successfully fighting against billboards for many years and here's three that they took down which you can see were almost obscuring this really lovely church um uh so you know perhaps that perhaps that's what what is needed in 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 some cases um would it be art here is um our um, community art board in, again also in St Werbergs in Bristol where we curate a, a rolling series of artworks this one was done by an artist called Matt Bonner in collaboration with the local community which celebrates um, the community um, the community's efforts to to go advertisement free and just here is the latest one which has just gone up um, this is an artwork um, by um, which celebrates a local grassroots hero, Angela Francis, who was one of the first black female DJs in Bristol. So, you know, th these are examples of, of, of other much more positive things that we could do with these places. We are um, inspired by other cities who've, who've, done, who've done this, who've gone advert free. Um, this is uh, from Sao Paulo in Brazil, who um, took away um, met all their billboards in 2007. Um, and actually they went further than this. Here's a picture from Sao Paulo of, they, they actually removed um, a large shop frontage um, in the city, as well as removing all the billboards, um, which had the result of, of some buildings deciding to, to, to paint themselves bright colours. Um, this is, or would we want more green spaces? Um, this is uh, Grenoble, um, the first European city to get rid of billboards. They got rid of hundreds of billboards in 2015. They said they wanted a less stressed out city and they replace billboards with trees and community notice boards. Um, or, um, you know, might, might your community want to encourage more participation? Um, here is an example of an activity which we have done um, several times in, in South Bristol. It, it, we, we simply changed the use of this advertising space, and um, which is just in the middle of the local high street, usually advertising Coca-Cola or KFC or, or something. Cover it up for a day and invite people to contribute their own thoughts and messages um, and, and, and we, it's, it transforms the space, it transforms the use of that space and, and we become rather than passive consumers of, of the advertising there, active participants in what we're seeing and, and, and having that conversation. So could we make this a more, more permanent fixture or, or a rolling opportunity for this kind of engagement? I guess what I'm saying is, you know, what, what would, if you, if, we, if you got rid of the billboards in your community, what would you want instead? 
Um, would you want to make more space for voices from the local community, businesses, community groups, cultural organisations, maybe growing projects or art? Um, space for, for you know, bringing, bringing out the voices from some of these fantastic initiatives that Fidia was just talking about, you know, which brings so much more to the local community and the local economy um, than the corporations that we, that we currently allow to have this space. And thanks very much for inviting me to, to speak to you tonight. Hey, <laughs> thank you very much, Nicola. That was brilliant as well. Um, and quite a lot of questions have come in, but we'll move to the third speaker, which is Sarah Gonzalez, to talk about markets. Thank you, yeah, Sarah. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for the invitation. I'm going to be okay. So, um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to be talking about the community value of traditional retail markets. And I'm an academic, I work at the School of Geography, University of Leeds, and I've been doing research on markets for many years now. It all started with me being actually part of a campaign group in, 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 in Leeds. We formed a group called Friends of Leeds Kerrigan Market, who were trying to save our market from what we thought was the local authority kind of running it down into decline and perhaps trying to gentrify it. And from that on, I became more interested as a kind of academic uh, topic, and I've been uh, working on this topic now for, for a few years now. Also uh, linking up with different campaigns across the UK to, to save and, and transform markets. So what do we mean by traditional retail markets? And the word traditional is actually sometimes a little bit problematic, but this is how the industry itself calls itself. So there is different bodies uh, that represent markets and market traders, and they tend to call themselves traditional retail markets. And that's because the idea is to make it kind of a, say something that's slightly different to what other markets are doing, such as, for example, the farmer's markets or the more trendy craft markets or foodie street markets. So that's not really what traditional markets are about. Traditional markets are more the kind of place where you go and buy essential goods, essential food, normally affordable food as well. Um, Often these markets tend to be run and owned by local authorities in the UK. Uh, sometimes, you know, almost over uh, three quarters of, of markets in the UK are run by local authorities. Um, often in kind of mid Midlands or Northern England, they tend to be kind of Victorian market halls or indoor market halls. In London, they tend to be more like a street markets. Um, so this is what we mean by, by traditional markets. Um, this one here is one of the markets that we've been doing some research on, which is Berry Market in, in Greater Manchester. And if we class it as a traditional uh, retail market, you can see kind of the mix of things being sold and how people different ages, different kinds of people are enjoying the space. So I wanted to, to kind of start, uh, first of all, by a little bit challenging this idea that traditional markets are in decline and even the, 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 the high street is in decline. And since I've been doing research on markets, I've been hearing this a lot, the fact that markets are in decline. In fact, there was a, 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 a parliamentary inquiry in 2009 that was called market failure, uh, the, the kind of decline of traditional markets. And there's lots of discourses around this. Markets need to modernize, they need to catch up, they need to bring themselves into the 21st century. Market traders need to adapt. Market traders need to adapt to the consumer demand. Somehow traders are out of date, they're back stuck in their ways. There's a lot of discourses around this kind of markets being almost something of the past. And the fact that almost they need to kind of modernize in a, and become more like supermarkets or like perhaps trendy food holds. 
Um, but I actually want to challenge this idea of the natural evolution of markets as if they kind of there's something in the past and that the natural evolution should be towards kind of supermarkets and kind of 24-hour Tesco's and things like that. Um, and I want to say that rather than this being a kind of a natural process, it's actually a process which is a result of political decisions, it's also the process of austerity, neoliberal urban planning, and I think actually Nicola really talked about all of that really, and so how they kind of the power of corporations. And it doesn't necessarily need to be like this, but the, the fact is that, for example, this is a recent um, uh, the Canter panel on, on the share of the grocery market, and as we know in the UK, we're completely totally dominated by by supermarkets, by massive super corporations. With with if you look at the bottom, the symbols and independents and other outlets only take about uh, four percent of the market. So within these um, traditional markets, will be a very small percentage. There's a problem actually how this data is collected as well, because this, this data collection tends to actually favour the corporations as well, so even we're not even sure what, what the actual real data will be. Um, but I want to say that this is not necessarily a kind of a natural evolution, it, can, it, it is different in other places of the world. For example, I was just quickly looking at the case of Barcelona, where the, the provincial government does a survey and asks people about their consumption habits. And when they ask people, where do you shop for fresh produce in your neighbourhood? People did say they go to supermarkets, of course they don't, they, they, they go. But they also go to a local neighborhood shop, they also go to the municipal market, the street market, and even also they buy from the producer. So there's a different kind of dynamic going on there. And even in an even completely different place, for example, in Quito, in Ecuador, about 75% of the food um, in the city is provided by markets and, and informal markets. So just to say, of course, these are very, very different places, but um, you know, it's not necessarily a natural progression from markets to, to supermarkets. So what's actually happened in, um, in the UK with markets, but really across the UK, uh, most people wouldn't really have a local place, a local market where they can go and do their shopping. You know, most of us will have a supermarket around our, you know, very near our place where we can do our shopping. So what's actually happened in, in, in the UK with markets? Uh, in fact, there have been, in a way, um, in decline for, for the last few years. And why lots of different things have happened? Uh, often they've been demolished um, due to kind of very bad planning decision, they've been demolished because the land where they're sitting is probably very valuable and, and local authorities would like to do something else there. Uh, austerity, of course, many local, like, like I said, many markets are run by local authorities and these days it's very hard for them to invest on these buildings. Um, so that's been really, really important as well. There's been a lack of expertise in local authorities and also, there's also an idea that to kind of um, to modernize markets and to make bring them into the 21st century, somehow they need to be gentrified. So we're having this model as well of the kind of of the foodification of markets, where rather than places where you go and buy your essential goods, they become places where you go and kind of have an experience and consume rather expensive food, which is obviously uh, leaving behind the more uh, the customers which are normally used to go to the to traditional markets. So really what I want to say that in fact, uh, traditional markets can be part of a community-led high street. Markets are already there. There's already uh, you know, over a thousand markets, around thousand two and, and, and 600 markets all around the UK. They tend to be in very central locations. They generate wealth, uh, they generate community wealth. They have higher job density than supermarkets. Think about, for example, a 24-hour uh, Tesco, one of those enormous ones, 
how many people work there and how many people work in the market. Uh, markets also provide low barrier entries for, for uh, setting up a business, particularly for maybe migrants, new arrivals, ethnic minorities, and they provide affordable fresh, fresh food products and, and services as well. Interestingly, like I said, I've been saying, many of them are already owned and managed by local authorities or community groups, community interest companies and co-ops and so on, also own markets. When they're run by local authorities, if the markets are successful, they actually can deliver surpluses and profits for local authorities, which then local authorities can actually invest those into other services. And we do actually see that happening in many markets. For example, the one in Leeds where I am um, does provide a surplus or has been provided for decades to the local authority, which can then be used in other services and schools and houses and so on. And also, of course, they, they also uh, provide a more sustainable way of shopping and a more of a circular economy. And um, we can see that by going shopping to the market, you reduce your waste. And most people that shop in markets go there in public transport, so it, it reduces car-based consumption and, and shortens supply chains as well. And then uh, what we've been doing in our research, we're looking in particular at the social and cultural value of markets. And this is something that most people, particularly most market managers and market traders do know about. And the fact that they are community hubs, they, they, are, they provide community ties and trust, particularly between people from different ages and ethnic and social backgrounds, but there's been little evidence around this. So we've done, we've done um, a survey with 1,500 market users in three markets, Newcastle, Granger Market, Berry Market, and Queen's Market in, in New and London. Uh, last year we did this more or less. Um, and we've also done some focus groups and interviews. Uh, but in fact, what's been really interesting has been this market user survey. And I'm gonna give you some quick findings from this, from this survey, which have been quite striking really. So there's lots and lots of figures in here, but I guess the most important thing is the kind of people that we find, that we found that shopping in, in markets tend to be over a 60 year old and many tend to be women. So about 70% of those who shop in markets are women. Um, many of them are non-white and not born in the UK and they tend to come from the most deprived neighbors in the country, not have access to a car and they live with families. And they, they don't tend to be in paid full-time work. Uh, interestingly, they, they, very, they, they rate very highly their markets and they tend to be very loyal. And for example, many of them do most of their shopping in these markets. So they're very reliant on these markets. Uh, so when these markets, for example, gentrify or they get demolished, these customers, where do they go? Because they actually do a lot of their shopping there. And they, they really like their markets because they have affordable and quality press uh, produce. What was really interesting was this, this data we found about how people find a community value in their markets. So for example, over, over when the majority of people agree that they feel safe when they come to their market and they feel that it's a community hub that provides a sense of belonging. 74% feel less lonely when they visit. If you think about that many of, of, these, of these customers are actually elderly people, this is an amazing resource uh, for, for in the center of their, of their towns and the high streets. Over 50% of people agree that they receive help or assistance from traders and other customers. Uh, this can be many different ways. Um, and many people share news or information with traders. Again, if you think of people that might live on their own, or perhaps people that are new arrivals, migrants, and ethnic minorities, this can be a very important source, source of their information. Um, and then we were very struck by this idea that many people bump into, pe into people they know when they go to the market. 
and 68% of people talk to people they don't know when they go to the market. So for some reason, when you go to a market, you're more likely to speak, to speak to people you don't know, which these days in, in our kind of more uh, anonymous cities and city centers is quite something really interesting. And 53% of people arrange to meet others they don't know, and 43% visit with family. We also found that in markets, people tend to be uh, more likely to speak to people from different uh, cultures to their own and dif in different ethnic backgrounds to their own. So again, these are the functional spaces of social inclusion and social mix. Uh, however, these, I'm, I'm afraid this community value is under threat, and I've already given some ideas of why. And I just wanted to highlight these two examples because they've been quite recent. The one on the right hand, hand side, the Elephant and Castle Shopping Center, some of you might have seen in the news, it, it, it closed permanently uh, a few weeks ago and it's being demolished now. And the one in the left hand side, Latin Village, it's been closed in smart and it's been threatened with demolition since 15 years. And these are two markets that have been serving the Latin American communities in London for many years. But they are, and they, they truly uh, deliver a community value. And that said, really, I just wanted to end up thanking my colleagues from the university and, and other places. So, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, it reminded me before I was working at Ethical Consumer as part of a whole food shop and we started in the market because it was an easier way to start because you've got the short term you can get out of the lease you know in a few weeks time and and also it really did have that sense of belonging you talk to other storeholders and yeah we weren't working on our own anymore so uh, yeah I, that was a good memory um thank you we'll go on to the fourth speaker now it's Neil McInroy from Cles. Hello everyone um, I've been enjoying this so far, and I'm feeling one of those times when I don't really want to speak because I've been enjoying everybody else's contribution so much. I want to hear the discussion. But uh, I'm Neil McEnroy. I'm from the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, with the UK's leading uh, national organisation for local economies, and we are rooted in progressive economics. And it's worth just saying that we believe in the true meaning of economy, which is oikonomos, uh, the Greek word for economy, which means keeper of the household. And we believe that the economy needs to be brought back home, brought back home to our people, our communities, if not our hearts. Um, now, just to start, I'm, I'm going to talk about broadly about the economy, really, and what was going wrong. But I just want to talk about the crisis very quickly. Um, and we can't separate the high street from the wider economy as it's been and what's going to happen. And it's linked to an economy that's been corroding for many years, uh, a corporate consumption to the economic model. And the high street has been the face, if you like, of an economy corroding, um, an economy going wrong. It's the canary in the mine of what the economy has been doing to us. And um, this crisis is not linear. So it's not an idea that we're in this crisis now and then we'll get out of the crisis and we'll go back to some semblance of the way it was. Unfortunately not. It's a roller coaster loop um, of moments of intense crisis, and then it will ease. And that's because of the ongoing pandemic, but probably future pandemics, and but most importantly, the ongoing climate uh, crisis. So we need to make a bigger shift, a deeper societal and economic paradigm shift. A linear model, a linear idea will fail. Um, now, in that, the high street, we need to think that there is forces out there 
who believe that this is a linear thing. We'll go back to the old normal. And what will happen is those that did very well out of the old economy, those that did very well out of the old high street will try and come back again. And community ownership and those types of activities, which are so vital, how do we lock that in? Because sure as hell, they'll come back and buy up community and the ownership that's there. So there's something more systemic here that we need to think about. So we cannot build back better for the few. We need to get ahead of the game here. And we need to reform our high street fundamentally and reform how we use a natural ecosystem and our biosphere. And in this, how an economy functions and who benefits from it needs to be front and center. And wealth and who owns our economy is a feature of all economies, a fundamental feature. Who produces the goods and services and the wealth made in our high street? Who gets that wealth and where does it go? These fundamental questions of how we create the paradigm shift, the big leap away from a linear idea and actually create a new economy altogether. And I'm old in the tooth and I've been around this conversation a lot. The problems we face in the high street are long-standing. It's been known for years. The Portis Review, nothing got solved. A little bit of community ownership here and there, but nothing really got solved. The high street problems are rooted in wealth extraction and domination of shareholder return and big companies and corporate return. This is about community ownership. This is not about community ownership in your high street, fitting around the edge of ongoing shareholder and extractive economy. All economies should be owned by us and bring that economy back home. So this is a, a moment where the community ownership we see and all the energy and desire to turn the dial on what we see in a high street needs to, needs to have political activism. We need to start to force and take over some of those forces that want to return to the old normal. We need to bring the economy back home, not a transactional economy, but a high streets that are relational to us, planet and well-being. Now, there's four key issues that you've touched upon, everyone's touched upon it. The dominance of large commercial economy in a high street. We need to change that to an economic ownership that's more public and social. The local state, as Vidya say, allied to that beautiful community power. We need a local activism, a local state activism that Vidya was talking about, linked to that community power, that horizontal power that will push the dial upwards. Too much focus on financial return in our high street. We need to make environmental, social, cultural return equal and measure all that stuff. We've got this generic high street, local matters. We create high streets to reflect place, identity, history of our uh, lives in our society. Um, we need a new wave of independent traders, business support and tax breaks that support that, new housing, new community uses, bringing again the economy and the high street back home. And wealth extraction, those shareholder value gets takes away. We need to make sure wealth is recirculated around place and land and ownership of land and property is key. There's much ill-gotten gains in terms of who owns our high street. We need to bring back the ideas of the commons. That's why community land trusts and community land banks are so important. And what we are doing in Liverpool city region to seek to see how we uh, encourage even more 
of community ownership of land is key. Now, none of this is fanciful when a lot of our work, community wealth building is starting to advance that. It's common sense for the high street to deliver well-being for as many people as possible. It's common sense for areas where the wealth is produced to the people around that area to enjoy that wealth. It's common sense for a high street to nurture the planet. Now, this pandemic has seen a new spatial economic geography, a new economic geography of how we conceive of space and conceive what spaces are for. We are seeing a natural movement of the market away from those big agglomeration city centres to villages or district centres. That's an amazing opportunity. But don't let those old wealth extractors back in, for goodness sake, to district centres and our local high streets. Um, in conclusion, high streets are not thoroughfares for consumption, but sites for life and well-being. And we say at Claire's, we need to localise, socialise and democratise the high street. And the power that we have all got in our own individuals and the communities allied to the local state is the battle we have at this present time. And hopefully that alignment, that allied, will actually start to turn the dial and stop us return to what would be a old wealth extracting normal. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much. Um, so I read somewhere that I can't remember where that the UK economy was hit harder by um, pandemic closures than some other economies because it relies so heavily on consumer spending. And I hadn't heard that before. So I just wondered if anyone could shed any light on that or how other countries do it differently. I, don't, I haven't heard that specifically, but it makes a perfect economic sense in that we rely heavily on um, consumer spending and financial services. And that is very, that, that, that's, that, that, that's been very, that's been weakening significantly during the pandemic. The, the countries that have higher levels of manufacturing and higher level, levels of um, diversity in terms of their economic production um, are more resilient to any type of economic shock and change. Thank you. Don't know if anyone else wanted to come in or I'll just pick the yeah, video, go for it. But just building on what Neil said, I think resilience through diversity is going to be key going forward. So, I mean, Neil talks about this just being one phase of a pandemic, there'll be others and there'll be climate change and actually having a much more diverse economy, not just, you know, uh, which is partly about diversity of ownership and diversity of activity. So, you know, if we want to build that resilience in going forward, we actually need to address this now and, and to think about that, yeah, how we create much greater diversity um, going forward. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's not just, yeah, I mean, it's not just some kind of positive vision because we want community. It will also help us with a lot of other problems. Um, so, to, yeah, just, just a quick point on that. I mean, also I think the UK is particularly strong in, uh, in credit. So a lot of people are consuming and, 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 and getting in debt. So there's a lot of credit for consumption. So I think that is even worse because people get into debt so they consume, and that's actually promoted by government, and there's a huge market for this kind of consumption, consumer credit, which I don't think is as big in other countries, but again, I don't have the details, but I think it's particularly big in the UK, where people are just quite used to, not because, you know, not like we said before, because uh, corporations and financial services are so strong that they're actually kind of 
selling this um, this product so that people can take credit to consume. And we're hearing all the time that we need to help the economy by consuming more. So that's I think I'm 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 particularly um, it's something that has been surprised me at the UK. I guess living in the UK, this idea of how much you have to consume and how much credit there is for consumption as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll go to the next question. Are there organisations that help community projects in other countries like Spain? I think this question came quite early on while uh, Vidya was talking. So I don't know if you want to answer first. Um, I mean, yes, there are. I think what's interesting is that there are other much more developed uh, local, locally led, community led kind of co-op oriented economies in the U than there are in the UK. So Mondragon in Spain, Evergreen Co-op in the US. So I'd say we were behind the curve rather than leading the pack. Um, I mean, Neil will have other views as well, but um, there, are, there are much more developed um, examples elsewhere than we have in the UK. Uh, so I think we're, we're just, you know, this is starting. I think there's a real opportunity now to build on the momentum that's been created and, and to start to sort of try to systematize this and to take things to scale, not scale in the sense of each one, each thing gets bigger, but that more communities, more local places uh, start to take on a real, a very much more localist and much more community oriented and community owned sort of vision for, for how they move forward with town centers. But there are lots of international examples to, to follow. Would someone, anyone else from the panel want to comment? I know I've heard um, Neil talk before actually about how different it is in other parts of the UK. I don't know how many people from the audience are from England or versus Scotland or Wales, but I think it's quite different around the UK as well, isn't it? In terms of what the local authorities will support people with or what, um, yeah, at the level of uh, parliament or local government. Gen generally speaking, um, England is a little. England as a nation is a little bit of an out, outlier on this, and that it's for many years now has not supported the wider um, democratic forms of ownership, um, such as co-ops and community businesses and social enterprises. Other countries have, which is strange considering that the Rochdale pioneers invented the cooperative movement. Um, other parts of the United Kingdom are much more on this game, as well as obviously some city regions and some localities, where there is an architecture which actually supports the growth of democratic forms of ownership. And of course, the great work that Power to Change in Vidya does is part of that. But, but I would argue that it's not got the, the same backing, perhaps, that other ad national administrations may actually um, push forward, like in the Basque Country or in Catalonia or even in, in Scotland, in a sense of recognition, the community ownership, democratic ownership brings to the mix of diversity of ownership forms within an economy, which creates the resilience, of course, as video talked about earlier. Did um, Nicola or Sarah want to say anything about links they have with uh, projects or communities or in other countries? Maybe just... Okay, I'm from I am from the Basque Country, so feeling a bit like you've mentioned the Mondragon Corporation, and um, this is actually a massive corporation these days. So it's I think going back to how it was a long time ago, um, maybe we can learn from it. But right now it's like an enormous corporation with massive supermarkets. So not not to be a bit negative, but um, 
you know, they, they've taken over, uh, kind of, they've actually taken out business, other co-ops, and so, you know, um, yeah, I think it was great as an example of when it started, but now it's like a massive corporate. It's true that the people who, who uh, work there uh, have got like um, an ownership and a say in how the, 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 the business is run. So they have these big assemblies and people do have a say in how the business is run. So that's really interesting. But as a kind of model, I think we need to maybe perhaps think about beyond it because it's mentioned a lot. But exactly what's happening right now with Mondragon Corporation is perhaps a little bit different. As in my experience, at least, it's just big you know, massive, taking over other businesses and, you know, so, yeah, just to kind of add a bit to that. So the next question was, uh, for Vidya first, um, Vidya, you mentioned community improvement districts. Are these a real thing yet or an aspiration? Um, so they, they are emerging um, in Scotland. So kind of echoing what Neil's already said about Scotland being further ahead and it, it has a much more enabling both policy and legislative framework. Um, so it's really, they've kind of driven this forward. Um, the, so in, the, in England, it's a concept um, and there, there are a number of local authorities who are quite interested in, in implementing it. I think there are, there are, we're currently just doing some work to think about how you would implement it. So does it need, can it build on what's already there? Would it need new legislation? Should it build on uh, community uh, rights type legislation like neighborhood forums or should it build on business improvement districts there are there are lots of ways forward should it have kind of scrutiny powers or should it be more of you know what what kind of role and uh, responsibility should it have so I'm optimistic that that there there seems to be enough interest I'm optimistic that something could move forward in England but um, you know we can we are already looking able to look to Scotland for to see some of this in action Did you want to comment on that, Neil? Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. It's, it's worth just um, sort of building on that, really, is that what what is the, uh, you know, Scotland's, I'm not, I'm Scottish, and is it just something in the DNA or is there something actually here we need to fight against? And, and I think the issue here is part of what I was talking about in terms of this activism, is that, you know, um, in England, there is, we can't just assume that the good examples that are happening are enough we need to get much more active and we need to build movements for change which actually start to attack some of the inert forces who want to go back to the old economy and so we we, we can't be complacent with this the reason why we've got things in other parts of the uk is partly in the tradition in dna but also because of some struggles that have taken place over many years and this is a struggle we have across the world and in england and we need to commune, these events are so fantastic to commune and talk about these things, but it is a struggle. We need to get political and activist about this. And if we can ally that with a local state, then so be it. But there is something we need to um, not just rely on those examples. They look at this great, why don't we all do this? There's a bigger political battle, I feel, that we need to actually win and build, and build a consensus around that battle, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Could I just like chip in with, so for the average person who maybe hasn't, doesn't really know how to do that, where would they watch their way in? How would they even find out about an avenue that they could go down to try to do that? 
I think that the people doing stuff on the high street, then that's good and keep on doing that and do more and more. But also there's a political agitation element to that too. Um, and that, that means campaigning for certain changes to planning and so on. So it's getting involved, not just in the project, which is important itself, but if you can also see the political and economic roots to the problem and start to go at that too. And that's partly what my own organization, Center for Local Economic Strategies is trying to do. It tries to align ourselves with people all across the country doing good things, but also we are the people who try to turn the dial on the political economy of power and how do we help? And we try to ally and help people if we can on that. And there's many organizations like New Economics Foundation and others who are on that space, as is some enlightened local authorities. Could you say just a little bit about, you've got a conference coming up as well, haven't you? Um, is that something that people might be able to engage with in this audience? Absolutely, and Power of Change are very welcome sponsors to that event. So thank you for that video. And uh, It's on next Thursday. Um, and if anybody on this chat wishes to, it is a fee, but anybody wants to get a free place, let me know. Um, I'll put something in the chat uh, line, uh, but it's a community wellbeing conference, a global one, examples from all over the world. And that's next Thursday. I think that's the 5th, isn't it? It's the 5th of November. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll put a link now in the website, uh, in, in the chat, and um, my, my, my email, and if anybody wants a free place, I'll let them come along that's amazing <laughs> thank you um okay so the next question on the q a list is um are property purchase and rental prices the main issue that the examples video um you were giving at the very beginning were overcoming are you making the space accessible to businesses whose turnover can't afford market rents as they are um it's quite a so i think that it's a really it's a really mixed picture so Many, uh, many community businesses, community organizations actually have business models, you know, are doing everything off their own back. They're purchasing privately, they're running their business privately without um, kind of subsidy built in. So, you know, but equally, I think in terms of if we want to, if we want this to be possible for more organizations, then we do need to think about how we, and I like to, I'd like to see it more as how, how do we recognize social value in the way we think about rents and access to space. So. It's not just a, a, something for a local authority, although more of the pioneering has been done in this space by local authorities because they have that, you know, fundamentally we have a problem where the long term, the alignment between who owns property in the, in, on the high street in England in particular and who has really a long term interest in the place isn't very well aligned. We've got a lot of absent fragmented ownership. So local authorities have tended to be the pioneers because they have that long term interest in place. But we're increasingly talking to private owners about you know social value rents like could we have rents that actually recognize the value to the local economy of the, the organization and the business so seeing it less as a sort of grant subsidy and much more of baking into the way we think about access to space uh, what we really value about local places and what we really want local um local economies to deliver so i think you know so you've got everything currently in in terms of say the things that we support you've got everything from things that require a sub-market rent because otherwise they're not viable and things that are fully sort of able to, to support a, a full market rent. So you've got the whole spectrum kind of going on within the community ownership space. But I think fundamentally going forward, this isn't about, um, you know, subsidies to enable things to happen. This is about recognizing the social value of what's delivered and charging people, giving people access to space in, in recognition of that. So you'd offer a discount because actually you're, you're not, 
you're contributing to local economy, you're delivering community well-being, you're, you're supporting kind of uh, the vibrancy of a, of a place rather than, you know, shipping your profits offshore and, and a lot of what we, were, we currently get through the, the, the traditional retail consumer offer. So that, I think, is what it is ultimately about. It's like, what do we value and what do we want to see delivered in place? And how would we structure rent? How should we structure rent and ownership, access to ownership in order to make that more of that happen? I've got an additional a kind of addendum to that question. I mean, I've heard of local authorities offering spaces to community groups or projects on short term, you know, short term. But is that, are there any actual rights for that or is it just up to the local, you know, how supportive your local authority is? Yeah, so there aren't rights to short term use, although I suppose there are kind of squatter type rights that I'm they're not ones that we particularly sort of are that familiar with, but um, where the, what there are rights to are, um, you know, the right to bid. There's the, there's the under the localism act. There are community rights. Um, so, for example, if if you if you register something as an asset of community value, you then have um, a window within which you, as a community organisation, can can purchase, you know, can look to purchase that. I think the challenge is that the rights are quite weak. They're quite complicated, and they're quite difficult to use. So like largely they haven't been hugely successful but I think they're platforms potentially to build on so you know one of the you know we could we could strengthen some of those rights to make it easier for community organizations to be able to use them and, and to be able to access property through them but in terms of meanwhile use and pop-ups it's generally at the discretion of of the property owner. Thank you um, okay so the next couple of questions move on more to the ad-free side of things and the market side of things. So um, next we've got a question from Susie. What about the bus stops? Are they also part of the ad-free vision? So I guess that's going to Nicola. Yeah, thank you. And actually there's a, there's a sort of related question, a couple down uh, or a comment really about digital billboards that are maintained by local council. So I might just capture both of these because they are linked and I think relate to you know, quite, a, you know, quite an important question that, that is asked around um, what income does, does the council get from um, advertising sites and, and, you know, that being obviously quite an important um, issue to, to, to tackle. Just to, I guess, explain how, how it, it, it tends to work is that advertising sites are um, sometimes owned by the council, um, but they are very often owned by the advertising companies themselves. Um, so the council is not getting any um, rent from those um, sites or they're owned by private land, uh, landlords. Um, so the council again isn't getting any rent from those. The council will get you know, some, some um, money from business rates for, for advertising sites. Um, but what we've tended to find is that um, you know, the, the, the income to councils is not as significant as you might think. And I also think that while this is, I, I do take on board this is an area that you need, we need to address and I'll come on to that. We need to be really wary of seeing corporate advertising in our cities as some kind of neutral or even benevolent force. It, it isn't, <laughs> um, you know, the, as, as I've explained, it is really undermining our, um, our local economies, our health, our well-being. I mean, look at um, something like junk food advertising. You know, cities are, are covered in junk food advertising where, um, you know, councils have, 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 you know, explicit policies to address, you know, health, um, you know, public health problems caused by high um, sugar and salt food. So, so the, these, are th these things are really in contradiction. Also, you know, cities are, are covered in, in car advertising and what's that really doing to, to air quality? So what are the costs really in terms of 
of health and in terms of our local businesses to um, you know to having these um, uh, this advertising in our cities. So so I guess that's just kind of to frame it really. Um, however, of course, you know councils are, are massively strapped for cash at the moment, and they're not going to want to <laughs> give up um, you know sources of, of income without without good reason. Um, what I would say about the bus stops is. Um, there's an opportunity, so, so councils have contracts, so in the case of Bristol, say the council has a contract with the outdoor advertising company Clear Channel um, and, and Clear Channel, um, you know, the, the, the income that they get partly funds um, the, the upkeep of those bus shelters, so, so there is a sort of relationship then, but this is an area where councils have some control, right? I mean, it works slightly different in London, in, in London but um, Transport for London have imposed a condition, for example, um, on advertising on the London Transport Network, where there is now no, you know, they've imposed a ban on junk food advertising, for example, on the network. So they do have some control there. What we'd like to see is, is at the very least, councils where they, where they do need to renew these contracts with advertising companies, imposing conditions um, on these contracts, which, which benefit communities and benefit local economies more. So could they, for example, um, introduce bans on car advertising, junk food advertising? Could they um, could they stipulate that the that 50% of the advertising space is given over to local community initiatives, to local businesses, to local cultural organisations, for example? You know that would be a huge step forward, um, we think, um, and and something that councils do potentially have control over. Um, so yeah, we'd like to see outdoor advertising sites gone, but we think at the very least, where councils do have the ability to to impose those conditions, that that would be a big step forward. Could I just ask you, because I think, so a, few, a couple of years ago, you wrote a piece for our magazine on the Beyond Consumerism page. And I think we asked you a similar question then about um, how willing councils would be to give up advertising space when they're getting income from it. And I think you answered similar to what Vidya was saying earlier about if social value, if there's a different understanding of what you're gaining or losing from having that advertising space used for different things, we can we can look at it, it there's there's different ways of understanding the benefits that you get other than just finance isn't there is that something that there's evidence for though that people can use to say we don't want these ads they're actually causing harm yeah there's been some research done in brazil actually to show that the sort of net benefit of removing advertising um, but there is a net benefit to society of removing advertising, which is quite interesting. Um, we'd really love to see some research done um, in the UK on that, which obviously, you know, we think that would, you know, um, would support what the, the assumptions that we already make and, and what we hear from communities. Um, I can talk most about sort of Bristol City Council and their attitude, but, but you know, most councillors that we speak to in, in Bristol do not want <laughs> advertising in the city, which I think is really interesting and perhaps not what you might expect. Um, and we've heard, you know, that the, the supportive voices from other uh, cities as well. Um, and, and it is about, you know, community well-being and it is about, um, you know, the things that really matter. They sort of, they, they're, they're restricted by planning policy, unfortunately. Um, and, and they find that very frustrating. Um, and just, I guess, as an aside, that's something that we really need to, to, to work on to improve it, to, to reforming policy, to enable councils to reflect those values in the decisions that they make. You know values around environmental protection and which which they're currently unfortunately not able to do um but yes i mean we we, we know that, that certainly in the example of bristol council they are supportive of, 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 of you know get, getting rid of advertising or certainly not allowing any any more in yeah um 
Okay, so we'll just go to the next question, which is about markets. Um, somebody, Madeline has asked, I don't know if my local weekly market has local produce and it's not organic, so I use Riverford instead. I'd love to shop locally, but how can I make sure the produce is local? Um, Sarah, could you make any comment on that? Yeah, I guess. I mean, um, yeah, I think in, 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 in the UK, uh, traditional markets and local markets do not necessarily sell local produce. Um, yeah, that's partly to do with the climate, I guess, but just in general, it's quite different to other countries where you know, you know your local market is a kind of farmer's market. In the UK, the farmer's market is much more of a kind of a niche, more expensive, uh, and the local street market or the traditional market tends to sell. I mean, you know, the, the traders normally go to the, to the wholesale market and buy food there and bring it to the market. I mean, my own experience is that having shopped in, 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 in my local market for, I don't know, 15 years at least, because there's definitely more local food than in the supermarket. So you can definitely see the season and you can see, you can definitely see the differences of what goes, you know, there's different products, different weeks, which is not what you get in supermarkets. Uh, it's definitely not organic food because like I said, traditional retail markets in the UK have tended to kind of serve people from low income and there's a lot of people from ethnic minorities so they have low, less kind of spending power. Um, so th th there's a bit, I mean, there's more of that happening definitely across the UK, uh, but that's not what it tends to happen in, in traditional markets. I mean, I would say that, um, I mean, I think, okay, great, organic food would be great if we could all access organic food, but as, as long as it's so expensive in the UK, um, you know, I think people need to have access to fresh produce and affordable fresh produce. And at the moment, uh, traditional markets do give you that. And something else that, that, that these markets do as well is that at least, again, the ones that I'm, I'm aware of, the big, the big ones, is that they tend to sell kind of discount products from supermarkets. So it becomes like a secondary space for supermarkets to get rid of the stuff. So I often see, I mean, sometimes what you see there in the market, I mean, to me, it's a kind of a tragedy because I remember in summer in, in Leeds Kerrigan market, they were selling boxes and boxes and boxes of avocados that were basically going to waste. And, you know, the, the fact that these avocados have, you know, producing them has taken so many resources back in Peru or wherever they come from, water, land, they've been shipped all over to the UK and they've basically been, you know, they were just being sold there for no money. Uh, so that's a kind of a huge strategy. But in a, in a way that more markets are doing is, um, you know, maybe managing this waste because people are actually, some people will actually buy this stuff, you know, you can actually buy, I don't know, 10 avocados for a pound and some of them will be all right. So rather than go to waste, they're being used. So that's quite interesting. So I appreciate it's not, it's not necessarily local food. Also, there is, there's a, I think, I think Mama B is talking at some point in this conference, I've seen, but she's a, She's a kind of a food activist or something, and she's, she's very interesting. She always says that for many people in the, in the, in the UK, local food comes from the Caribbean. Um, so local food means different things to different people as well. Uh, so some people that come from other parts, and I, I appreciate about the food mines, of course. Um, um, but you know, what the, the idea of local food is, is kind of interesting, isn't it? And, and not such as, um, as, as, as long as we haven't got you know, full ownership of land and we completely remake the land ownership in the UK is going to be a bit difficult to have local food affordable for everyone. 
So I think for, for the time being, I think it's, it's, it's important to support markets, even though they don't send necessarily organic or local food, because they are a source of, of kind of affordable produce. Um, so yeah, that's a way of answering there. Thank you, thank you. Neil, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I, I always think, imagine the, think of the acumen, the creativity, the imagination that brings peas, monge two from Guatemala to our supermarket shelf. Imagine if that was applied in terms of local food production. Um, it seems to me that we tend to, um, there's a huge change to be made here and we need to start to think very differently about food and how we relate to food and the production of food and the distribution of food. And again, in that, many of us will support local produce and organic farming and the whole range of stuff. But how do we scale that? And it seems to me that requires big power to start to shift. And so it's linked to a wider theme, really. I'm always amazed by the creativity of humankind and communities coming together. But of course, a lot of that is used in the wrong way. And we need to start to think differently about how we use all that creativity and power. And so that's, again, I'm repeating myself, but it goes back to that point about activism and attacking the big power so we can start to use our human ingenuity and our creativity in much more productive and ecologically sound ways. That leads us on to the next question, I think, because you're talking about, yeah, activism, taking action. And the next question is, how do you find out who owns the properties on the high street and what can you do with that knowledge? So, I mean, I'll, I'll kick off. This was a recommendation that government was supposed to be delivering on to create a transparent register of, of property ownership, which they've sort of failed to, to deliver on. So we do need to keep the pressure up because actually knowing it's the first step to being able to change things is actually knowing who owns things. And for many people, wanting to do projects locally they actually and who want to get access to a particular space they need to understand kind of who does actually own things i think once we do know who owns things um there are you know there there are partnerships that we that we can think about between local authorities and community organizations and other interests that can start to try and put pressure on on uh, private owners to uh you know particularly where space is empty so one of the biggest challenges is that you know there are if you own a, a portfolio and, and you have no real, your interest is in the capital value of that property and therefore you have no great interest in what goes on in that property. So many properties are left empty because it's the capital value that is, is on the books of whoever owns it. So trying to sort of start to change the dynamic to get more to it, to try and encourage owners to make better use of their properties and to enable people to use them so that they're, they're not empty. But I think ultimately, um, you know, we need local authorities to, to, be a, to be willing to go further and to CPO properties that are left uh, derelict where, you know, where owners aren't, don't have an interest in the long term sort of future of that place and aren't, aren't letting the property. So I think that, um, you know, we need to see more activism, as I sort of said, like from local authorities to try and really get, kind of get better control of uh, properties. I think one of the challenges for local authorities is they can't because of the fragmented nature of ownership, they, are, they often can't curate the town centre in the way that we really need them to. We, we want kind of more locally uh, driven visions for, for what happens, but that's very difficult with the kind of fragmented ownership that we have. So kind of going back to the question, so yes, there are plans afoot to create much more transparency around ownership and we need to really keep the pressure up. 
some local authorities will have better information than others about uh, already about who owns what in their in their town centre. But there is a move by national government to to do that on a bigger scale, and we really need to kind of keep pushing for that to be delivered. And then I think there are. Uh, you know, there's a lot, there's things that people can do once they find out who owns things to try and put pressure on people, on owners to try and make sure property is used. But then I think ultimately to really change the game, you really need to take things into public ownership or into community ownership. And we need to ultimately try and get that much better alignment between who has a long-term interest in a place, which is generally the public sector or communities um, and who owns things. And once we start to align those, we get to a much better place in terms of the future of our places. Thank you. Neil, I think you were going to comment as well. I could agree completely with you. I mean, absolutely. And uh, we have a very poor understanding of who owns England, and I'm saying England on purpose. I mean, we do know who owns it. Uh, it, it, it. The Queen owns a lot, and the associated hangers-on owns lots of the land. Uh, so it goes right to the heart of the English establishment. Um, it is, it is though compulsory purchase orders and what local authorities can do and, and uh, in, a, in a city recently, I won't name it, they own a part of the, an area abutting the CBD and they own the, they own the properties uh, where uh, retail and, and uh, restaurants are and because of the pandemic and they own it, they're starting to repurpose so when somebody wants to extend the space to next door they're, shift, they're shifting people around so they can create that uh, a unit, uh, overall management or stewardship or curation of that because they actually own it. And they're, own, and they're doing this for the traders, for the business owners, but also in the interests of citizens too. They're not just sitting on it waiting for the old normal to come back. They're actually managing it and creating it. And of course, that's dem democratic ownership. And that's what comes with democratic ownership. They act in the interests of us not in the interests of uh, their own wealth accumulation. Thank you. Um, I don't know if anyone else has spotted the time, but we've got three minutes left. So I just want to ask all the speakers if they've got any final comment or something that pops into their heads tonight or something they want to leave the um, audience with. Um, who would like to go first? I just think, I would, just to say, I mean, I think some of, sometimes the scale of change that we're trying to bring about feels pretty overwhelming. Um, but I'm maybe I'm just naturally optimistic, but I'm I'm sort of optimistic, just because yeah, you know, two years ago when we first as Power to Change started getting involved in the high streets debate, I used to speak at things and people just used to uh, sort of metaphorically pat me on the head and kind of go oh yeah there there this community stuff lovely but never going to go anywhere. And now I sit in similar kind of events and, and meetings, and actually although there's a long way to go, the mainstream are starting to use more of this language and I don't think it's necessary just kind of social wash or green wash or whatever I think there is a real understanding that things have to change um so I think we really need to keep the pressure up because there you know when I hear sort of somebody like Bill Grimsey a sort of died in the war retailer saying that you know what his generation did to town centres has been to destroy them and we need to kind of think again and make it much more localist and much more community oriented I feel sort of hopeful that we you know we, we can make make change going forward and this is the moment really to try and keep that momentum up. Great, thank you. Uh, Sarah? Um, okay, I mean I'm not, I'm not that such a perhaps optimistic person um, as an academic, you tend to always criticise everything so um, perhaps that's because it's easier but I mean I, one worry I do have is that this idea of community 
high street, which I'm completely in favor of, can also become a bit of a kind of gentrified community high street. So I think we need to be be very aware of that kind of uh, niche, kind of high-end, upmarket, uh, foodie-type high street, because that leaves so many people behind. So I think we need to go for the grassroots. I mean, what's been said here, really, the grassroots, the bottom-up um, high street that is, is actually serving our needs. Um, and, and I go back to the inside the other economy as something which is about provisioning. Um, so, you know, provisioning and, and our kind of essential needs, uh, which won't leave anyone behind. So that's just, yeah, my, my take. Thank you. Uh, Nicola? Um, yeah, this has been great. I, um, I guess just one reflection to, to leave with is during lockdown, particularly at the start, I don't know if you noticed, but advertisers stopped using advertising spaces. And some of them became kind of run down or you had like fade and rip, faded and ripped adverts that have been there for ages. And then you saw like artists and creative agencies starting to kind of take them over. And you got these like fantastic creative campaigns that were all about community as kindness and believe these days will pass. And in Bristol, there was a fantastic initiative by Rising Arts Agency to commission work from you know, young people and um, artwork from young people on billboards. So I feel like like now is a really ripe time for making these changes and seizing on on that on those opportunities and this kind of like have we had a flavor of what it would be like to get rid of the messages telling us that we're not good enough and telling us to consume and replace them with um, messages that tell us that you know um we're all right really <laughs> um and to, and to work together so i guess that's just a reflection to leave you with and also like we're really interested in hearing from any community organizations or, or individuals who want to and be supported to 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 sort of to, to take back community, to take back sort of creative control um, of these spaces in their own communities. So do um, get in touch if that's you. Brilliant. Thank you, Nicola. Um, Neil, finally. It's been brilliant. Thanks so much for putting it on Ethical Consumer. It's been a brilliant conversation. And I'm, I'm reflecting, there's a guy called Roberto Unger, who's a Brazilian politician philosopher, and he says that the small changes we make, the small things that we're all involved in, um, foreshadows the bigger change. And when they work, we need to really sing about it because that's the horizontal power that will tip the balance. And also in that foreshadowing, the forces of going back to the old normal will always co-opt and weave those new things under their own arm. We need to realise that those new things, those radical innovation things that we've all been talking about, that foreshadows a bigger change and it's got a politics and a new economy built into it. And let's not be let's not be in the illusions that the forces of old power and wealth will co-opt and hang on to the grim death until we're all burning in hell. So we need to make sure that we don't let them co-opt what we're doing and keep the radical social innovation and sing about it in political and in economic terms. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's been really interesting.